Hey folks, and welcome to episode 20 of the Strong Startup Podcast. So startups are really good at running with an idea. Usually it's in any and all directions as possible. And in a way, we're, we're all good with running with things, going with the flow. But taking a step back to slow down and to think critically about your business can be the difference between a failed first-time entrepreneur and a true innovator. So critical thinking is the topic of this week's podcast with Dr. Carl Thomas, a lecturer at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland on creativity, innovation and entrepreneurship. And he's also a founder of Creativation, his innovation consultancy working with both large corporates and also smaller startups. So fun fact, actually, Carl is my mentor and he's one of the first people ever that helped me to really start seeing my work with the strong startup, which was just a podcast, a YouTube channel and some early stage social media content uh, to start seeing that as an actual business. And I'm still in the process of setting up that business, but Carl has helped me to really shift my perspective significantly in a positive direction and to really set my vision for creating my own profitable business, fingers crossed. I had the pleasure of working alongside Carl at several innovation workshops and the depth of his reading and his knowledge in the areas of innovation, creativity and critical thinking is, is really, really remarkable. And I always learn so much from talking with him, which is why this podcast is almost 90 minutes long. <laughs> so a quick note that this is actually recorded about one year ago in August 2020. It was that famous day when Zoom completely crashed for everyone for a few hours. We switched over to Google Hangouts and the audio recording got completely messed up. My audio recording skills are pretty poor, so it took me a very long time to fix it and clean it up. And then eventually I forgot about it. So just FYI, this is actually recorded about one year ago. Anyway, in this podcast with Carl, we discuss critical thinking and first principles. We discuss the importance of feedback, ethics, and how all of this relates to startups. So enjoy the podcast. Super. So, uh, Carl, we're live uh, finally after a bit of a, a Zoom disaster, but we're here, right? Uh, technology. Yeah, you can never, never trust technology. Absolutely. Uh, but thanks so much for for joining um, the Strong Startup Podcast. It's um, it's really, really great to have you here. Uh, you've been helping me out a lot for the last while, and I've always enjoyed uh, your guidance and support over the last couple of months. So it's kind of cool to be able to have uh, the, the recorded version of the conversation now uh, to share with other people. So um, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we've got a lot to discuss, um, but uh, you come from, I suppose, a, a critical thinking background. I think you've done a lot of research and different stuff in that area. Uh, and then your bread and butter is kind of creativity, innovation, uh, with creativation, your company. Um, something that is uh, very interesting for me to see how you grew into that position and grew into that role and created that. Um, and we're going to try today a little bit to to frame things around um, Anova City, uh, this upcoming project that you're actually going to be engaged with um, next year, which I'm really excited about. You'll be leading one of those hackathons. Um, so um, it'll be great to talk about Anova City because it's upcoming now in the next uh, month or so we'll have uh, three different hackathons focused on um, uh, urban mobility and developing solutions around that context so i think it's kind of a nice way to frame how we're going to talk about critical thinking other entrepreneurial uh, skills and mindsets and stuff like that and then a little dabble of design thinking we can get into it and uh, see if it's really what it is supposed to be and um, yeah the, so this is basically a couple of the things we're going to talk about so I guess for for the audience and for everyone who doesn't know you uh, maybe you could give like I don't know like a little introduction about who you are and uh, what really drives you what your passions are it'd be super 
Uh, passions. The short list. <laughs> experience. Um, experience for me is huge. Getting that really sort of intense engagement with pretty much everything. Um, mm-hmm. I will probably hit on this, but the real sort of a fuel for creativity is eclecticism. It's sort of a broad range of interests and experiences. And that's something that I'm hugely passionate about. I want to know about everything I don't know about. Um, that's kind of central to who I am as a person. Um, in terms of what I do, that's also pretty eclectic. I do a huge amount of different things. I have my own company, uh, Creativation, which is an innovation consultancy. And off the back of that, I work with companies in all sorts of different spaces, from startups to long-term established um, corporates, semi-state uh, companies and organizations as well. Um, I just love working with people in all of those different spaces and all of the different kind of problems that they face and challenges and then how they ultimately have to solve them. Um, I also am academic lead at Trinity College for Innovation and Creativity. Um, so I teach a lot of courses there. Um, what do you then, teach there? Uh, is it a wide um, variety of courses? or? Yeah, so up until recently, it's been pretty much everything related to innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship. Cool. Innovation and entrepreneurship, and then creativity is essentially what sprinkled in. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of well, it's a very heavy spring, heavy sprinkling, um, but it's right the way through it. Um, so I'd be academic lead in that, and I've also recently taken on the role as academic lead for career pathways as well. So um, that's essentially people who are coming through the entrepreneurial journey and finding right. ways to turn that entrepreneurship into entrepreneurship. Um, so taking those sort of key skills, which are now sort of very much the necessary skills for sort of existence in the 21st century. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so it's essentially about how they become product owners or leaders within companies and take ownership for navigating uh, change. So that's a sprinkling of what I do. Sprinkling, a little little sprinkling. I mean, there's much more you've told me, but we'll, we'll stick to that for now because you have, uh, you're a man of many talents. But what I picked up on there, which I liked a lot, uh, which is really what a lot of what I tried to do and what I try to, um, in my very limited experience working with entrepreneurs and startups is to push them towards action. So I think this, I, I like this phrase of like, you know, pushing someone from idea to action. And you seem to have learned that maybe for probably very early that uh, experience is the best uh, educator, right? That there's also other phrases about you can learn something from a book, but then when you try to recite it or you try to explain it to someone or better yet, you put it into action and that's when uh, the next level of learning really kind of is solidified in the brain even, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, even in, not to sort of jump ahead, but within the design thinking model, we talk about minimal viable products and prototypes. Mm. And I don't like to separate prototypes from people. You know, we prototype <laughs> ourselves. And one of the other things I do is I also coach. Um, and as a coach, I'm very, very pushy. And I'm very challenging. And I yeah. people achieve because we often underestimate our own capabilities. And it's not until we put the minimal viable product version of ourselves into a space and iterate in that, we learn that we can actually do an awful lot more than we think we can do. Mm. Um, also the application of knowledge refines the knowledge. And we find out that usually, you know, a book that's maybe two or 300 pages long, what we really need is about a 40 page synopsis. That yeah. Us in that space. Um, so yeah, getting those sort of ideas into action very, very quick is for me, it's hugely important. It's incredibly valuable for the yeah. entrepreneur and the products that they're essentially trying to sell. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So I have a question then. Um, well, a couple of things came up. Are you a fan of Tim Ferriss? Uh, 
because you, you mentioned about there's something you mentioned just there I can't remember but it popped in my head about hmm, maybe like I bet yeah I think it's about your body and yourself being a prototype because he is known for kind of testing on himself these different methods of the minimum effort required for the maximum gains so would you be a fan or, or like those elements well, probably of what he does for right? me that kind of mindset comes from my martial arts background uh-huh. Okay. Uh, more so than, and what I've actually found is that an awful lot of what you come across in innovation and entrepreneurship in terms of texts are borrowed ideas from other spaces um, mm-hmm. and applied in, a, in the business world. I mean, you and I were talking about Marcus Aurelius recently yep. um, and his meditations and the fact that matters business has borrowed a huge amount of those meditations. So I would have come across an awful lot of the concepts and ideas that exist in innovation and entrepreneurship far before I was ever involved in innovation and entrepreneurship hmm. uh, in their sort of their, dare I say, their purer forms. The raw uh, form, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of mindset of prototyping with yourself, and that's very much something that I've learned from martial arts from the time I was, you know, seven. Um, yeah, and that links in, I think, well, with what you said about pushing yourself to the limit. So I'm a big fan of of doing that. I think I get that from my father from from the soccer days when I used to practice and coach and play soccer. But, you know, you really don't know until you test yourself. And I think uh, Mike Tyson has that famous quote, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? And I think you, you uh, taekwondo background, right? Um, kickboxing. Oh, kickboxing, sorry. Yeah, I always mix it up with just Taekwondo with you. Apologies. But um, but yeah, it's the same thing, right? I mean, until you can practice the kick, but until you're fighting someone and you don't know when they're going to kick, if it's going to come to the head, to the body, um, that shock of getting the first kick to the head is, you probably still remember it. I, I definitely remember getting choked for the first time with Jiu-Jitsu. My first and my last. I'm probably quite a few of them in between. Um, yeah, and you may have forgotten a few as well, you know, the head contact. Say so. Um, but no, absolutely, there's... I love, and this is, you know, again, this is something I was talking to um, a culinary director about recently, the value of fast feedback. You know, there's no yeah. faster feedback than being in a ring. Um, but, you know, in the culinary space, if a client doesn't like the meal they're served, they're going to tell you. Yeah, you know, They'll know they don't like it, so you get feedback. But I love the, the fast feedback, especially, you know, I don't want to sort of labor on the fighting element too much, but... Every time you fight somebody, it's more than likely a new person. So you have to have your style and play, but be mm. and be yep. responsive to whoever is you're in front of. On fighting on an international level, you get some sort of insight about who you're going to fight, so you have time to prepare. But for the vast majority of my career fighting, you would have come up and fought maybe six or seven people in a day in a tournament, and you wouldn't yeah. know any of them. So you have no clue what to expect. Yeah, you have to be adaptable. You have to be capable of taking the skills that you have and yep. applying them to fit lots of different problems. Actually, there's a, a blog on my um, on my website about how design thinking fits into the fighting context. Nice. I think it's a great analogy, honestly, uh, because, you know, it's like um, I, I'm, I'm taking a course on on developing yourself through uh, developing your YouTube channel through kind of like, you know, different strategies and tactics. So tactics in this context would be like, you know, you need a business model, you know, you need to have that high kick, low kick or whatever it is. But a strategy, I think, is more what you're talking about there, which is like how to put those techniques, those tactics together in order to be able to succeed against someone who you don't know, because you don't know whether they're going to rampage you in the first two seconds or if they're going to like 
play it cool and, and then attack in the last couple of seconds or whatever. And it's kind of the same with, with YouTube or with business or whatever else that, you know, you may know that there's this fantastic design thinking method. You may know that you should start by talking to the customers, but I think until you have a full strategy of how to implement those different tactics, um, you're probably kind of only getting 50% of the, the value out of uh, what you or potential maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, what I, what I see quite often as both a coach and an educator in this space is that some people arrive in with a product. Mm. Some people arrive in with no product and they want to build a product in the space. Um, they know they have a sort of an entrepreneurial energy. They want to yeah. exist in that space. So they're looking for an idea. And quite often, that's a useful place to start with a client. But sometimes you do get people who come in and say, I have this brilliant idea. It's a fantastic product. But I don't know who my clients are. I don't have any kind of strategy attached to it. I, just, I have a belief in it. And yeah. it's almost having to, you're kind of jumping into that empathy defined idea prototype test model sort of somewhere in the middle or somewhere towards the end and actually you prototype to find your client um yeah and do the way around and it's but yeah going back to the fighting analogy you can get in with somebody who's 70 80 90 kilos and a 90 kilo fighter might be six foot three or might be five foot six and this wide but if they're taller you know and you have to you have to respond to that and you have to you've got your skill set you're essentially getting in with the product to meet yeah meet the client and you have to adapt in that space yeah so from from my experience going back to your point about uh, people coming in with an idea already versus people that uh, kind of just are what they want to create a startup right i would say like most of the startups we work with they already have an idea and then when we go through we do like a pre-incubation program and what's the most difficult part of that but that program is getting them to take a step back and say okay let's look at your team let's look at like objectively uh, what you have in your your repertoire or your, your little suitcase of uh, startup things, whether it's tech, but tech uh, that's completely ignorant of what the application would be. And let's try and find the most suitable market. Like you said, finding a prototyping to find your client. So which, which one of those groups do you find uh, easier to work with? I suppose that maybe it's a simple question, but I'd be curious no, to get actually, your opinion. To me, the people who are easier to work with are the ones who come in the, the blank canvas who says, look, mm. I, I want to, I love the, the startup space. I mean, startup space are very, very, very cool space to be in. They're very, very trendy at the moment. It's, Absolutely. Community vibe around it. It's a pastime for a lot of people and it's a, it's a fantastic pastime. Yeah. Um, and it's a great way to meet people. I work at some of the startup events here. It's, you know, you're meeting, you're meeting like-minded people. You're meeting people you can share skills with. All of that's wonderful. Um, I like to start with people who come in as a blank, as a blank canvas. Yeah, because it, it is easier. But just because something's easier doesn't necessarily mean it's better. The people who come in with the product in mind, as you said, sometimes you have to pull them back yeah. um, and rein that in. And this is quite often because when somebody's designed a product in isolation, um, they are pouring themselves into that product. The product becomes an extension of themselves. And any kind mm -hmm. of criticism is very, very hard to hear. Yep. Um, this is where the coaching skills come into play and it's quite useful to sort of I recognize the value of what you're trying to achieve I recognize your effort in this space can we talk about opportunities to improve what you're doing yeah. um, and sort of pulling somebody back a little bit and it's two you know it's one step back for two steps forward um, the problem with people coming in with an idea in place the small percentage will be fantastic quite often mm -hmm. what you'll find is it's somebody's quick response to something and, and with real innovation and real creativity, we don't want quick thinking, we want long thinking. Um, we want people to be challenged and this is where the critical thinking comes in. Um, you know, 
evidence now, research shows that this whole mindset of there's no such thing as a bad idea doesn't fundamentally fulfill um, the ideal goal. It's very, very useful at a certain stage in the, in the, in the process of innovation. But you also need that critical engagement. You need the edges knocked off. You need to be open to hearing the, the feedback that's perceived potentially as being negative, but is actually very, very useful. Hmm. refining your product or service. But if you've created a product in isolation and you've brought it to this startup hub and you say, I want to work on this and this is mine, you've got ownership. And you're trying to gather a team and you're trying to inspire them, but you're not willing to evolve or adapt. And that's not everybody, but it, you know, it can be, that can be more difficult to break down than helping build somebody up. Yeah, I've experienced that. I mean, I've gone through that as well myself where, you know, the product was dead for a start, one startup that I, I wanted to create. Um, looking back on it now, I don't know how I ever thought it would work, right? It was an augmented reality with dementia patients and for the patients themselves. So it sounds nice, could be revolutionary, but when you look at the age group, you look at the, the obviously the, the the mental difficulties, the um, uh, the neurological deficit that that they unfortunately have, and introducing a brand new technology, not even a phone, but wearing it on your head and you know, superimposing images on top of the real world, um, I, I couldn't believe at the time that it wasn't going to work, right? Because you're so close to the product, and I wouldn't say it was developed necessarily in isolation, but it was more like a bubble, I would say. So not just like Alan developing this, but rather like within a project, it was very clearly defined that this was going to be the product and we we're going to build it and then we we're going to test it. And when you're in that bubble, even though I was presenting uh, at different conferences and stuff like that, it's it's still, it still is a bubble, right? Yeah, um, I'm like, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm yeah. so, so my question is always like, and I have also worked with people in particular, it's very difficult. We do some, some uh, med tech bootcamp. So when someone has had that pain and someone maybe has had a medical condition and realizes that this is not, uh, this is not good. I'm going to create a solution for this. That's I think even harder because sometimes then the emotion is, is interlinked between the person and the business. There's no kind of separation yeah. between them and always makes it harder. But do you have any recommendations of um, how people could um, earlier than normal um, expose themselves to kind of feedback? Because I always tell startups, like, don't keep it to yourself. Of course, if it's like patented technology that's not yet ready, don't like tell them the secrets of the world, but you should be talking as loud and as visible as possible about your idea as often as possible. Absolutely. So first thing, you don't take it to your parents because they're going to say, oh, sure, aren't you great? Well, it's the mom test, right? Have you read that book? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't read the book, but it's... <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's, that's, the, that's the summary of the book, basically, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you need to do is find a naysayer. I love going out and finding clients who hate what we're working on. Yeah, they just don't like innovation. Don't like innovation. Don't like you. Don't like your idea. They're going to give you all of the most negative feedback. And if you can resolve about 50% of their issues, you're probably onto a winner with your early adopters. And then you're still iterating. Then you're still improving. Um, But absolutely, you have to create a level of visibility around around your product within a trusted circle. And what I mean by trusted is that you trust them to not infringe on your IP. And you also trust them to give you the kind of rigorous, rough, feedback that you need because this is the you know the mom test again you don't need yeah. anybody telling you everything you're doing is great because you're not going to improve you're going to stagnate um you never leave well enough alone you know i love that line yeah you know you 
even if you think it's a good idea, find the problems in it. Find a, this is the, yeah. the objective, the capacity for objective thinking. Step outside of yourself and look at it. I mean, the, the idea you just mentioned there, I've heard that idea in another university. Um, yeah. I was giving a talk to PhD students um, on innovation and they're working in an innovation hub. And some of the ideas were interesting. Some of them mm, not so interesting because the, their lack of capacity for application. Yeah. But um, there needs to be, I, I like that idea. And I, I see the problem that you mentioned in there, but I love problems because I'm like, okay, well, yeah. if we think that the technology is too complicated for the user, let's find a way to reduce the complication of that technology. Yep. Um, and just because maybe it doesn't work immediately with your target audience that's in place at the moment, sometimes the pivot is within the context of the audience, not necessarily the, yep. the product itself. Um, so there may be a way to still achieve a similar goal, maybe 60 to 70% of that goal rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, yeah. I hate to see good ideas pushed to one side because it doesn't immediately click. Um, and sometimes, and, and a big one for me is that sometimes the real pivot is with the, the audience, the target audience, yeah. the segment where they fit, um, rather than it being a case of it doesn't work, hands up, everybody's frustrated. Game over. You're disappointed clear the desk, you know, and start from afresh. Whereas actually let's take a look at what's in the rubbish bin because I like to think that there's always a way to turn uh, an okay idea into a great idea and even sometimes bad ideas into good ideas, good functional ideas. So mm -hmm. um, this is where the critical thinking comes in. It's how you assess and reason and, and the kind of log logic that you apply when you're looking at different situations. Yeah, that would be nice to touch base with that because uh, I'm I'm quite unfamiliar, I suppose, with critical thinking in terms of what exactly is it. I mean, I did a bit of research before uh, meeting you here today for the for the um, for the podcast, and uh, it's really quite interesting. It reminds me of something like uh, deep work. Or um, the point that you mentioned a second ago, uh, which was ba basically that we need innovation to be kind of more longer term thinking and not just, oh, my God, we need to sell masks because people now need to use masks all the time. You know, I think that's great for business and it's a great business opportunity if you're in a position to be able to sell it. But you're probably not going to like retain those customers forever and be loyal to your brand, which is, I suppose, what most companies and startups would like to have. So maybe we can dive a little bit then into yeah, like maybe what is critical thinking from your perspective and uh, then we can talk about maybe how people can use it, you know, in terms of uh, when they're creating their companies. Um, okay, so critical thinking is quite broad, but in the context of what we do, it's not nearly as, so in an academic context when I'm lecturing critical yeah. thinking, we talk about argumentation, we talk about... Reason as well, right? Reason, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, it is problem solving. Um, we would talk about inductive and deductive reasoning. We talk about fallacies uh, of argument. We talk about biases in that space as well. Um, biases are useful to be aware of when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship, especially yeah. in the branding space, because actually quite a lot of the time in branding, we capitalize on people's biases. Yep. Um, to me, uh, there's this, a full quote by John Dewey where he talks about the essence of critical thinking being suspended judgment. Um, and then the essence of that suspense is inquiry. And that's to me one of the, for what we do in the entrepreneurial space, that's probably one of the most important um, statements that you can keep to hand. It is about suspended judgment because as entrepreneurs, we get very excited about something. And yeah. We 
bulldoze ahead. And actually, sometimes it's important to stop, take that breath, pause. But what I will say about this, and I say this quite often to people, there are some groups and there's some people who can pause for an eternity and learn nothing. Um, it's useful to build into that your capacity for asking questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how. So yeah. if you talk about, say, the lights of masks at the moment, and, and ethics is a big part of critical thinking as well. Straight away we talk about, especially in the current culture. Yeah. Um, it didn't take long, but it did take a while to get to reusable masks. Um, so initially when the pandemic broke out, people were wearing rubber gloves and were wearing disposable masks. Yep. I was going out jogging in the mornings and very, very quickly I started to see masks and rubber gloves on the ground. And mm -hmm. even if they're not disposed of inappropriately and, uh, you know, on the street, they're being put into bins. Yeah, they're, they're visible. They're, you know, they become and they're in the sea and they're, you know, they're blowing through the countryside and all this awful, awful stuff. Mm. Now, okay, the pandemic required a very, very quick response. But is there a way to make a 100% recyclable mask um, that either can be reused or biodegrades over, over a certain amount of time, ideally a short amount of time? Um, and this is where that kind of, hang on, let's, let's pause for a second. Let's think about this. Let's see, are we actually creating more of a potential issue in, in an environmental context by solving one problem really quick? And this is where the yeah. thinking comes in. It's but it's a good example of, of short-term thinking, right? It's just like, yeah. I mean, necessary, like you said, a quick response, but uh, it has consequences. But, you know, again, so we can solve this a few ways. We can say, okay, part of what we do is we get everybody wearing masks and that's our sole focus. Or we can have a dual campaign where we get everybody wearing masks, but also highlight the fact that they need to be disposed of appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, people are using masks that are not recyclable or that, you know, aren't particularly eco-friendly or single-use. But is there a way that we can also make sure that they don't end up in the environment or in the sea? Or, um, or else we can move very, very quickly to trying to manufacture masks that are reusable. I wear cotton masks, so they can be washed. Yeah. Um, same here in fact i forgot i forgot my mask the other day at the weekend and everyone was just looking at me my friends were there and we we're like what are you what are you doing you're wearing like one of those cheap like single-use masks and I, I felt like you know like ostracized from society or something i was like oh my god i forgot my cotton mask fashionable. i went down to get my hot chocolate and i was wearing my mask and what was even worse was nobody in the space was wearing a mask and i was being looked at as the only person yeah, wearing yeah. a mask and you're like that's not not as many eyebrows raised as before, but still, it's like, oh, why is yeah. he wearing? Is like, is he like super worried about coronavirus yeah, or yeah. what? Yeah. What is this hipster? You know, it's like, <laughs> no, it's just taking. It's actually for me. It's definitely more about other people than myself. Yeah, but that's a, a whole other thing. This is a whole other element of sort of critical thinking. What yeah. actually is going on at the moment is that the narrative of critical thinking has been appropriated by the anti-science movement who are saying like, oh, no. science is just one narrative. We're the real critical thinkers because we challenge what people are saying and you're like, oh. <laughs> That's not it. I listened to a podcast on that actually and it was quite horrifying to hear about how people were trying to essentially disprove science by by saying that this is just your opinion or this is just one perspective. And it's like, mm, I don't think that's how science works. But Unfortunately, yeah. and I know this quite well um, because I work in a lot of different Spaces, scientists don't always communicate clearly enough to 
And this again, this is about selling ideas. You know, this, yeah. is, this is we have to sell ideas, and we have to think of ourselves as salespeople in this space. If you are if you are trying to communicate a message that's important to global mm -hmm. health, then let's try and do that in a way that the vast majority of people understand, rather than feeling ostracized yeah. by a message. We want to be inclusive with our messaging. Yeah, but avoiding jargon, things like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, and this is something I see a lot of the time. Uh, you know, having done a PhD and working with PhD students, you may, you'll probably recognize this, is that you get so used to having to justify a claim that you become quite safe in your language, but that create that kind of safety and sort of, I'm going to step back and make sure that creates time for people who are maybe less academically inclined or who are less scientific to bulldoze into that space and make you know, big, brash, harsh statements that are very, very certain and are yeah. very, very convincing because of their certainty, if not, you know, yeah. not necessarily the, whereas I've seen academics trip themselves up by, you know, being uncertain because they're saying there is no certainty in this space. Humans yeah. don't want to hear there's no certainty. No, no, no. They don't want to hear that it's complicated either. I, I just want to understand the five steps of whatever it is or the five, you know, it's like a YouTube video. Just give me a, a clickbait title to explain your scientific uh, experiments or whatever. But yeah, I think seniority in academia also has an issue. The, I mean, it's, it's it's stronger here in Germany with professors having uh, uh, obviously in, in, in a lot of cases very well-deserved respect. But uh, I've been to a few conferences where it's just it's just dogma. It's just politics. It's just, yeah. just people barking at each other. And, uh, you know, one person barks a little louder than the other person. And uh, you have these schools of thoughts and people can't have a reasonable discussion, which I think is probably part of critical thinking as well, right? To be, Absolutely. as you said, open-minded, defer judgment. Intellectual humility is my favorite mm. value in critical thinking and it is about essentially saying i don't know everything i don't know enough yet i still mm. want to learn even the things i don't like the, the sort of the moniker of expert um because all i have to do is go onto amazon google my field and there's about eight million books that i haven't read in my space even though i've like my uh, bibliography was probably longer than my entire phd um you know, it's, yeah. yeah i've read a lot but i haven't read everything nobody will um, yeah. I'm comfortable with that, but that's in the context of critical thinking. Um, intellectual humility is hugely, hugely valuable. Unfortunately, it's not modeled as a behavior as often as you would like to see. Yeah, I think humility in general is also good, right? It goes back to what we mentioned earlier about uh, not holding on too close to your idea or your product or your service, but rather being kind of a slave in a way or being um, uh, dedicating your journey to the customer or to, you know, uh, solving that problem, uh, irrespective of what technology or tool might be used, right? Yeah. So we celebrate the idea, not the originator of the idea. That's what I push in yeah. in, in, in a work context where, you know, the, regardless of who I'm working with, um, we don't celebrate necessarily the, the individual who comes up with the idea because no idea is created in a vacuum. It's influenced yeah. by so many other people. This is the nature of intertextuality. Um, there's this sort of constant nexus of inspiration going around so ideas are yeah. never a single unified uh, entity that comes from one person yeah. and there's even examples right of like very famous nobel prize winners or discoveries in science that actually occur within like a couple of weeks of each other in separate parts of the world when there was no internet or whatever that meaning that like you know your idea for an app or some cool startup idea for an amazing product is most definitely not the first time someone came up with this maybe you have your own personal spin on this and 
it goes a little bit towards, I suppose, Simon Sinek with how you can define your company based on your values, which makes you different uh, different compared to others. But um, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. I mean, it's... Uh, it's well, look, we're very often exposed to the same stimulus. Um, yeah. You know, you're in Germany, I'm in Dublin. Uh, but the reality is, like, I'm older than you, but we're in similar circles or in academic circles. Yeah. We're in startup spaces. Okay, now we've got a globalized narrative because of the internet. So we are very definitely exposed to it, similar uh, narratological structures. And mm. um, But the reality is even in the sort of earlier 20th century, within the context of socioeconomic paradigms, people were exposed to very, very similar stimulus and very yeah. similar ideas and modes of thinking. Um, and that's all. And then they would have spotted needs or opportunities in that space, and that's why they would have created similar enough solutions um, mm-hmm. for somebody, you know, between Germany and Ireland or, you know, uh, states. Um, it's it's. And again, this is why we try to dismiss the idea of originality when it comes to new ideas, because mm-hmm. again, I like to say originality is a myth. Because okay, something may be unique to a particular setting. But the re- again, the reality is it probably exists in lots of different spaces and lots of different versions throughout history. Yes, that's a very good point about the, the versions because I wanted to say something that, uh, you know, I, I'm reading a lot about what uh, VCs, uh, venture capital firms and stuff look for. And, you know, it, it's kind of a little bit of a thing that people say, like, oh, the team is so important. And people are like, yeah, I know. But like my idea is amazing. Uh, but really, it's, it's I think, nine times out of 10, the idea will have to evolve into multiple different versions uh, over over time. And if you define your company or your startup based on one product that you came up with, then you're you're married to that like area. You can rebrand, you can change your slogan and you can change your focus. But unfortunately, you're you're really going to tie yourself into a very small niche. Uh, but rather you define yourself kind of with a broader purpose. Uh, it's uh, it's easier. But it, it is true. Like when you read all of these different books, you talk to people, you know, uh, I get advice because the startups that we look for and that come in, we're the first contact, right? So we have a lot of uh, exposure to people that hold on tight to their ideas and we have to break them, you know, break the grip a little bit and then be able to loosen up the potential market opportunities. And a lot of my job is spent trying to find the next steps for them. So what funding can they get? And when you talk to these like micro VCs and stuff, they all say the same thing. They just say, yeah, we want to know, is the team ready? You know, have they got a prototype? Have they tested with the market? So again, it goes back nearly to that experience because... I think also finding a team, and I had a conversation recently with one of the startups that I'm working with. I, I said, look, it's great that you have two members, right? They were, they were brothers and they're, they're really great at what they do. But I said, uh, someone who's going to give you money or accept you into their program, you need to have validation that somebody else thinks your idea is good. So if, if they see that you can't convince someone outside your family that you know your idea is, is, is amazing and they want to join, then for them, the box isn't ticked. You know? and, and this is, I think, also why uh, the team is so important <laughs> in some sense. Capital is such an interesting space because a venture capitalist maybe wants to be the first person to invest in you, but also wants proof that somebody else is willing to invest in you. It's a chicken and egg kind of situation, right? <laughs> it, it is, and it's, it's they, they want validation, but it's, um, it is it is tricky. And yes, get, getting other team members from outside of your own immediate circle is a good way to, to some degree, validate your at least your yeah. capacity to sell the idea um but yeah it's a it's a it's a tricky space for startups i i tend to think that it's useful 
for startups to have a sort of a loose sense of their goal in mind because mm. again with the range of different startups i work with that capacity for sort of for infinite adaptability is something that i like to push even if somebody's going to set up a company that they want to stay working with for 60 years i'm okay with that provided they have the the opportunity i preach opportunities all the time i'm like yeah no matter what you do don't put yourself in a hole and you know pull the yep. mud over on top of yourself put the blinders up right <laughs> keep yourself capable of evolving even if you don't want to but make sure the opportunity is there to do it if you feel you have to mm. um, whereas some startups come in and the mindset is very much so here's product a we're going to get this into place we're going to get our money from a venture capitalist then we're going to go off at our 30 billion or get the exit done and yeah next, and then next and then next and that's fine as well yeah um but there are two different different kind of journeys there um, that people need to be conscious of themselves. And some people spend so much time thinking about the product or service or process that they're producing that they forget to think about, you know, where they're going with it. Yeah. It's definitely a very different direction. If you're looking to get an exit, you're looking for a company like Roche or anyone to buy you out. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes, I mean, companies don't start with that objective, but I have heard a lot of early stage startups that we sometimes experience or coach. And they're like, yeah, we're looking for maybe a possibility of an exit in the next three to five years. And, you know, it's fine, right? This just can be your strategy. And then you're, you're using the, the vehicle of a startup and this idea and your team to be able to create a nice, uh, cash prize to be able to go on to do other things so maybe this is step one of your your 10 steps of your goals but when you look at a you know really focusing on the customer and you know trying to deliver maximum value the the push of money or the push of an exit or the goal of that is sometimes can blur uh, what's best for the customers because if you just want profits i think it's different and not even just your customers because i was going to jump in but um i think you pretty much got there the ethical aspect of critical thinking is that if you yeah. exit, then how invested are you in the sort of the do no harm element of your product? Yeah. Um, seen, you know, I was at an ethics and innovation conference recently, uh, actually probably not that recently, about a year or so ago. Um, <laughs> because of Corona, the time has extended by six months at least, right? Yeah. Like it was last week. Um, <laughs> the, it was ethics, innovation and data. You know, when people develop mm-hmm. wonderful products, um that they're happy to walk away from within three years five years um when yep. they've got their 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 payoff essentially and they've no concern or concept of what the other applications for that product are mm. um, how a company will come in buy it and then adapt their product to their own needs and not all of them are positive some are quite nefarious um yep and you have people saying, well, we didn't do it because, you know, we just invented this wonderful thing that, you know, is completely innocuous and it just serves a purpose that we outlined without considering the long-term implications of, of what they're putting out into product ecosystems and how that, yeah. um, you know, how that, I mean, I put up a post on LinkedIn recently about the Lumiere brothers and, and video um, and cinema, you know, obviously they can't be blamed. For was that them. you then with the um, the modification of like uh, who who was it falling over the edge? Uh, maybe it wasn't you, no. Maybe it was someone else. Someone put up an, an image of a guy on the sky. Um, I can't remember his name. Very okay. famous. Uh, pardon? 
I'm going to say Buster Keaton because... No, no, no. It was a guy, Rollis, getting backwards, like old black and white movie, and he was about to fall over the edge, but they had just created a cardboard cutout of what looked like um, like a drop, but the, the ground was completely flat. So I thought that you had pu- published that, but maybe it was something different. No. It still sounds like Buster Keaton, though. Could um, be, could be. I do like Buster Keaton. Um, <laughs> you know, mine was of the Lumiere Brothers uh, video from 1860. Three, I think 64. Okay, a little bit before that video I saw then. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe slightly later than that. Um, but it had been colorized uh, and refined wow. and updated and looked stunning. It's incredible. But, you know, I mean, they can't be held accountable for how video has been used since then. Yeah. I mean, we have a greater level of awareness of, you know, what can be done with certain products and what can be done with certain types of technology. Um, yeah, I mean, we look at the facial recognition technology, where that started and what, what it's been used for now. And in fact, the Lumiere brothers would have had a connection, you know, a sort of a genealogical connection to facial recognition. Um, <laughs> so we, they can't be blamed on that. But people developing facial recognition now have to be aware of the fact that it's going to be used. Yeah. Maybe isn't ethically appropriate. Um, yeah. Depending on the model of ethics that you apply. We, we sometimes touch on the, the team canvas in our boot camps and uh, a big part of that team canvas, like the business model canvas, is uh, is about values. You know, like what are your team values? So it's important for your team to have shared values, first of all, because that has to reflect in the company and then that will be passed on to the customers, right? But um, yeah, ethics could be a big one because, I mean, you could have easily got military applications for what your technology could do and, and whether or not you want that to go ahead. I mean, a sim- simple example would be Twitter, right? I mean, you don't know what you're what you're creating. Uh, you're you're limiting maybe uh, the the attention span and uh, different things with the character limits. And I just I watched the podcast with Joe Rogan from the the CEO or the founder from that. And um, yeah, there was a storm. There was a storm afterwards that people were like, how the algorithm uh, filters certain things, who they ban. And they ban more, I think, right-wing than left-wing people. Now, these are just random things that I've heard before, so definitely not validated. But, you know, you're building a, such a massive platform. Or look at Google, uh, which is the number one search, search engine in the world. And then you look at YouTube, owned by Google, which is the second biggest yeah, search engine in the world. And that's like a conglomerate by itself. You know, it's just, uh, it's who would have thought that building that company in the beginning would have ended up where it is today you know it's crazy have a look at, i can't remember his name but have a look at the history of the guy who invented dynamite um all right to amend you know ethically he saw the impact of what he did um yeah pardon the pun but yeah <laughs> yeah but that, that, that that's really interesting yeah yeah i think there's a lot of examples with that as well with the the the, the um the nuclear bomb as well and different things, you know, things that were, were done for the, the purpose of scientific development. But then, of course, I think there's some famous quotes as well. I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, it's um, the ethics is uh, somewhat, I think, un- under underappreciated when people are developing the idea. But because they want to go, they want to move fast, right? They think the idea is going to expire at some point. So you need to get to the market as quickly as possible. Well, one of the points I made at that um, conference was that people are so conscious about whether they can that they forget the question of whether they should. Um, yeah. and there was a lot of engineers there and one of the guys that opened basically said, exactly. 
that's you've got it in a nutshell um we do think about you know whether we can solve the problem yeah rather than whether we should solve the problem and that's one of the disconnects i i would love to see on engineering courses um more than just a sort of an ethics module like a, a mm. sort of critical thinking module that's sort of run right the way through the course be part of engineering um yeah engineers are wonderful problem solvers but they don't engage they're not the ones who do the investigation around what the problem statement will be um, yep so love working with engineers are fantastic when they're presented with a good problem statement but they would yeah. solve a problem because that's the that's the training behind it of course of course they're they're builders in a way right but i mean this goes back to the point of having a, a multidisciplinary team i mean it's also a bit of a thing like you know um that people say or the, you know that the team is so important blah, blah blah but i think it really is because you need to have someone who can build something you need to have like a ceo or a visionary that has you know no limits and is a bit uh, a bit too creative or a bit too la la that people have to pull them back down to earth i'm a little bit like that sometimes uh, but you need to have that person because they they kind of balance each other you have the person that can practically say i can build this and then you have the guy that's pushing the limits all the time to be able to or the girl that's going to push the limits to whatever it can be you know um no it's 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 really interesting i have a quick question then because you're, you're mentioning engineering so you're, you're kind of like triggering me to ask a question um so i heard about uh this idea of first principles now i don't know whether it's an element, a subsection or element of critical thinking or whether it's something kind of separate entirely. But I think it kind of originates from a scientific background or at least from what of the limited information I've seen online. Uh, I know that Elon Musk talks about it, about kind of finding the fundamentals of a problem or the fundamentals of something that you're observing, basically. But it, it seems to be within the same... I would say genre kind of critical thinking that it's not just quick fire, mm -hmm. like let's just like look at that, assess it and go, but rather let's sit down, think, observe, and try to figure out what is the fundamental basis of a problem, for example, if it's a startup. Yeah. It's about reducing a problem or any kind of statement to its most basic fundamentals, um, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> to a point where there are essentially no more assumptions to be made that you are at the sort of bedrock of fact and reality. Okay, so you're sure that what your what fundamental yeah. element you have right now is like definitive in some way? Yeah, it's essentially it's like the Russian doll. You know, mm -hmm. you start off with the bigger one. And, I have one just here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you you go back and go back and go back until you are at a at a level where there are no there's nowhere else to go in terms of yeah. you know the, the kind of the factual uh, reality of a statement or a problem. Um, I one of the elements of sort of postmodernism and um, first principles, I think, relates to Aristotle talks about it. I think I remember Aristotle being mentioned. Yeah. Kant um, talks about it. Actually, Kant has a lot to, lot to um, pay, what's the word? A lot to answer for uh, when it comes to a lot of our misconceptions around creativity. Mm, okay. He was one of the people who established immediacy as being uh, representative of a creative mindset. And that's just not true. Um, so we'll talk about that. But um, the, the sort of we can, of course, we can jump in. No problem. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, the, the first principles element looks far more, and like many of these, uh, many of these theories and concepts, they look far more complicated than they are. Um, yeah. It is ultimately about basically reducing all assumptions to a final bedrock statement. Okay. Um, 
and how would that help you in in terms of like i'm trying to relate it always to you know what the the audience that are listening here might be able to take with them to move forward because i see a lot of the 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 examples online of what first principles is and i kind of like still lack like how could i apply that to like i know is it like for finding the fundamental issue that a customer might have with this particular problem or how how could you apply it in a way maybe one of the statements i use um talking to clients about it is i came across at a conference, somebody said, well, you know, 50% of shoppers in New York now are only willing to shop in ethical stores. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as a statement, we we kind of go, okay, great. That's, that's based on very likely um, <clears throat> qualitative uh, or quantitative research. So we accept it. But if you want to reduce the potential assumptions in there, we say, okay, so, mm-hmm. you know, New York shoppers. So... First of all, we'd ask, well, how many New York shoppers were interviewed in that space? So we we whittle away some of the assumptions in there because we assume when something is scientific that it's correct. Yeah, we take it out the word, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. As humans, we do. We respond to numbers in, in a very different way than we respond to yeah. the, 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 the sort of language. Um, if we talk about New York shoppers, so I say, okay, if we look at New York shoppers. We also have to take into mind the fact that actually where I picked this statement up from was at a, another sort of innovation conference and related to ethics. And I said, look, the reality is most of the people in this room can't define ethics. There's no sort of unified thing. So if I- It's too broad of a term basically, right? In a way. Yeah, yeah there's, there's no single clear definition of it. You know, people will say, well, do no harm is a, is a good example of that. But you may have a very different definition to what harm is. Yep. In New York, you have to bear in mind that you've got a very cosmopolitan um, group you can go from one street to the next and be dealing with an entirely different subsection of people or yeah um you know so then you've got age segments so tell me more about it. so you're whittling away at all of this you're deconstructing the statement um to get closer and closer to it you know if i go into trader joe's and i ask them are they an ethical store they'll probably say yes in new york because they use recycled bags and they maybe source their stuff more ethically but it's not a vegetarian store so yeah vegetarians you'll say and then you look at that 50 percent, and you kind of deconstruct that as well and it's about whittling this back and whittling it back and this to me very much fits within the sort of customer discovery elements yeah well look we you know i could present an idea to you and say well actually you know 75 percent of people we spoke to really like this idea now that could be 10 people from my family. It could be 10 people who are in the department with me. It could be 10 yeah. people, you know, or it could be five people and I'm doing magic with numbers, you know. It's like looking at a five-star Google review for a restaurant and you see the five people have done it and you're like, hmm, I'd rather see a couple of hundred or a thousand people that give me some certainty, right? <laughs> you know, you're asking a customer, what do you do in your leisure time? Um, and they're kind of hemming and hawing and hesitating and they say, oh, Cinema, love films, love going to the cinema. You say, okay, tell me about, you know, what you enjoy about cinema, love sitting in the dark, love all of this. And they'll give you the whole rundown. You say, okay, because we evidence check. You say, talk to me about the last time because we- I was just thinking about that. Yeah, it's a great customer question. You say, talk about the last time you were at the cinema. They go, okay, um, when was Titanic released? And like, <laughs> and go, okay, so validates. But yeah. people have this assumption or perception of themselves as being involved in certain behaviors. And customer discovery is fantastic for that. But it's a feature of that first principle, just breaking down all of yeah. the assumptions in play to get to that concrete bedrock 
that fits within the context of, of your um, your investigation. Because as an innovator, mm -hmm. you are as an entrepreneur, you are an investigator. Um, yeah, but that's that's a perfect example because you know people say often. I think uh, Henry Ford said it uh, about if you ask people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses, right? So it, it's all about going deeper and understanding uh, where the. I mean, you're responsible for creating the innovation, but if you just assume, like you said, that they love the cinema and that they they, they go there so often because you know they might be trying to please you, but I've seen that before. It's a very nice. First of all, I mean, it's not to catch them out, right? In case they, they could be going to the cinema like just last week and then they'll tell you uh, a very interesting step-by-step -step of how their experience was at the cinema. And then I think describing what they did is, is more indicative of their behavior and it's more like an observation then. So it's not just you assuming that uh, what they say is correct, that they they bought popcorn, they did this, did that, but rather you get more kind of, of, of the experience, I think, of the actual yeah. customer. So you understand the problem from the behavior side. Yeah, well, that's the qualitative nature of your research. And I, I personally prefer that um, as a sort of a critical thinker, you kind of prime to want to get into the that really nitty gritty qualitative space where you can worry yeah. and you understand it and you get this, you know, the who they are, what they did, um, how they felt, what they say, you know, that sort of empathy map um, yeah. and constructing that. What what I tend to find is as a, you know, sort of hyper-engaged kind of critical thinker when I'm in, when I'm wearing my sort of uh, business hat, is that quite a lot, quite an awful lot of the time, people experience problems in a very transient way. They don't really understand themselves in that space. So yeah. you kind of have to do a process of sort of mental simulation and walk them through their experience of it mm. and then they go oh i hate that jesus yeah I didn't yeah that. or like why did you do that or why yeah. did you enter yeah. the back of the cinema or whatever yeah, yeah yeah and that's you know that's your capacity as a critical thinker to be really good at yes the empathy part um and this hermeneutics is a feature that's sort of interpreting um people's behaviors and um, th then there's a phenomenological element don't worry about that that's all your fancy language that basically just means interpretation and experience um, mm -hmm. But it's being able to, and this is experience is important, this as well, your experience, it's important for you to be able to ask this, these questions and watch the person in front of you, watch their response and watch their body language. Yep. And um, it's not NLP, it's just basic human body language, you know, where people like folding up and closing in, are they yeah. away from you, are they getting closer to you? Are they excited? Is their tone shifting? Is it lifting or are they being dragged through this experience and, you know, watching for the jaws clenching, the nose flaring and things like that while they're talking about it. Um, all of these variables come into helping you to interpret and help them to interpret their experience and yeah. with any product. You know, it's with any product or any service, whether you're selling them something technology-based that, you know, um, reduces their stress, it's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of very quickly, maybe in terms of like resources that people, if they wanted to, I mean, there's plenty of startup books out there, right? But, you know, is there something you would recommend that may not be just business focused, but may talk about critical thinking uh, a little bit uh, to be able to understand uh, some of the basics? Because, I mean, I'm being a bit selfish here. It's probably for me as well. I'm curious to, to, to dive in, but it's, it's great to have the examples of how it links in particular to talking to a customer but uh ha, that's handy that's not a bad book um as a thinking story. thinking cool um john brockman it's quite broad it hits on some of the decision making and problem solving elements in there but um actually i really like this book it's a book i got a few years ago uh, thinking skills for professionals 
Hmm. Um, and it's pretty concise, but it is quite detailed. Um, okay. It, kind of around problem solving, I guess, right? A little bit. Um, yeah, it's it's a good book, and it covers some really important elements of critical thinking quite in quite a lot of detail. Um, they'd be two that I'd recommend as a as a starting point. But okay, get on Google. Google critical thinking. Yeah. Put in PDF. See what. <laughs> Yeah, YouTube's quite good now as well. I mean, with the first principles, I watched like a 15-minute clip, which was animated, which is really great, just to explain with some examples of what it is and stuff. So, yeah, you can probably get a few bits and pieces there. It's a new level of learning, right? Absolutely. Oh, look, I mean, yeah. it's handy for filling gaps um, or at least creating an interest. I, I'm quite traditional in my learning approach. I love books. Um, I feel that when you read a book, you kind of immerse yourself slightly more. It takes longer. Um, I take a lot of notes as well, which reinforces mm -hmm. my own process of learning. Um, yeah. And then I love to, and because I'm in the, lucky enough to be in a in a space where I'm an educator as well, my lecture my lectures are very uh, sort of interactive. Um, so I'm refining my skills as as a, as a thinker as well. Nobody has all of the answers. Um, of course. So it's about being able to respond to other people's statements and other people's interests. And to me, that's one of the really important skills for me as a critical thinker is being able to walk into somebody's office and sort of size up the space and get a sense of who they are quite quick, but also a willingness to listen to what they say. Um, this is, again, the deferring judgment, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. I wanted to ask earlier because I also find the same thing that uh, when I'm reading a book, I do it more so when I'm uh, doing a course because I'm doing a course right now and I take very extensive notes because I know that I want to go back over and remember these things because it's like, I think it's over 30 hours of video that I have to get through. So, you know, just in total over like a couple of weeks. So, you know, that amount of content is obviously difficult to, to process, but I generally find like going slowly at my own pace through a book is kind of far, far, far more uh, beneficial for like absorbing the information. So my first test is always my wife. So I kind of like tell her the interesting parts of this new chapter. But then when, when I'm working with teams, like, you know, kind of an educator, I suppose, in a way, it's also really nice to be able to pick on something fresh that you were just reading last week and be able to share it with people because I think it's kind of relevant. It's, it's, it's hot right now or whatever, and they can kind of relate to it a lot better. And I really like that. But my question was, do you use um, any, um, other tools like Blinkist, for example, which provides like the summary, but I, I guess you're a hardcore book reader, right? Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, as I said earlier, Blinkist is probably fantastic in that there are sort of 300 pages of a book and 40, 40 pages of that book apply to what you really want to know and, and are valuable to you. And, you know, having done a PhD, um, you get very, uh, very ruthless with your reading and that if I don't get yeah. it immediately, it's gone. That's so it. Re reading the abstract and be like, yeah. no, skipping to the results section and be like, nope, I'm not going to read that. Exactly. Yeah. But I do feel that if you're skipping to Blinkist, you're getting somebody else's perception of what's valuable. In mm -hmm. And the reality is they may not hit in the points that are valuable to you. Yeah. Um, and reading a book is an investment in yourself. Uh, you know, it's time you are investing genuinely in yourself. And there are books that I've read that I put down and thought, oh, Christ, that's, that was work. Because Thank God it's done, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not, you know, hugely valuable or maybe the content was a bit like I'd have a, 
a ridiculous level of sort of academic rigor in my mind. I want proof. I want validation um, for your statements. I don't care about your theories because theories are just ideas that haven't been proven yet. Yeah, great and they're interesting, but you know, give me the give me the concrete. Um, but what I found is that in our space, you read a huge amount in our space. I read a bit, you know, in the in the sort of the in the context of modern literature around business mm. and innovation. But I meet people quite a lot of the time who have maybe are big fans of Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. I'm, you know, I think he's got some nice ideas in there, but they're written by a journalist, not necessarily a psychologist. Right. Um, they read quite nicely. They're they're good readers. But I meet people who love them. And think they're fantastic. And if it facilitates me in having a conversation with that person, developing a rapport and being able to say, well, like, yeah, I did read Blink and I thought it was quite interesting. And I thought, you know. It's a bit of accessibility, right? To improve yeah, the conversations that you yeah. have. Yeah. And sometimes reading somebody like Malcolm Gladwell is useful because it's written in a language that's much more accessible than maybe the kind of JSTOR articles that you might download here and there where people are trying to prove their academicism rather than their accessibility. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, no, I mean, uh, Blinkist has its place, um, wouldn't be for me immediately. Um, I yeah. do have books that are actually probably built on the Blinkist model. So like summary books or something like yeah, that kind of thing, right? Business, yeah. Business classics. Um, yeah. And you get, you know, where it kind of has maybe three or four page synopsis on on a longer book. And yeah, some of them are quite interesting. But at the same time, there are... To me, it's worth reading a book if maybe there's four pages of value in it for you specifically, and you get the the broader idea. Um, yeah, you know, being in front of people as often as you and I are, it's useful to have a wide frame of reference. Um, I think so. You have to read broad, absolutely. And and I I delve between fiction and uh, you know, kind of these business self help different books because it's uh, nice to to have a goal as well. Like I find I can switch off a lot more when it's from fiction, but often the storytelling in fiction kind of reveals also some interesting insights that you can use for for your professional life as well. But yeah, I, I tend to use Blinkist just to to dip in and to check if this is like a really interesting topic because just sometimes by the cover or by one recommendation, you're not sure. And then if I like it, I'll, I'll always buy it because I'm just, we're trying to grow the library as much as possible because uh, it's always nice to have paper, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I find it. But the other side of that is, and I've mentioned this to you before, is that there's an awful lot of essentially regurgitation of the same yeah. things repackaged and rebranded yeah. and put into a new set of covers and so there's a whole new idea and this is yeah. why i like the as i mentioned earlier i'd be kind of a purist in my reading a lot of the ideas that i see in the innovation space i'm familiar with um one of the authors that i talk about quite a bit is earl nightingale mm -hmm. earl nightingale was kicking around in the 40s and 50s um he was one of the first self-help gurus but actually there's he's he writes about creative well wrote about creativity and um, fascinating character mm. but so many of his ideas have been and they weren't his ideas originally obviously sure um, have been repackaged and rebranded and have been and I've seen them being pitched as being the revolutionary next step in sort of innovation yeah. or creativity and you're kind of saying well this is just a cyclical nature of 
ideas um, yeah i think so it's been repackaged and i heard a quote yesterday which was interesting about that meaning that you know whether you should get started or not and it was in the context of a youtube channel but you know he was saying that if there's a lot of books on leadership that's good that means that there's a lot of there's a market for it right and yes there's going to be more competition to be able to differentiate yourself within that market and make your leadership book or i don't know your new innovative uh, framework for solving problems for startups uh, visible, but it does also show that there's a, a market, which is good. Yep. And I think that, you know, you're probably the same that, you know, just because you read one book on leadership or one book on critical thinking doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, now I got it. I have that one book. I'll only read that book and I'll just keep reading it again every, every couple of years, but rather you kind of like always like to get a little different perspective. And I'm sure from your side, even reading a book that may not be not, not a bad book, but a book that frustrates you or whatever is also like a, it's part of the experience, like you mentioned earlier, right? That you have to kind of go through it to challenge your own thinking and kind of like make the comparison between your own perspective and what they're putting ahead. So it's like a sparring exercise in a way, right? Yeah. And again, you know, in critical thinking, we talk about the rules of the dojo, you know, it's, yeah, it is about testing yourself. Um, it's not about beating up the other book or, or you know, winning against it. Um, it's about being open to the fact that you're going to learn something from it, even though, you know, it might not necessarily fit immediately with your, with your ideology. I mean, that's yeah. you know, trying to offset as much as possible. So, cognitive dissonance that can happen in that space but yeah um yeah no i mean the the whole sort of the, the kind of element about repatching ideas i mean we'll sort of move this into design thinking yeah thinking isn't revolutionary it's not new it's based on double diamond design processes it's based on triz it's based on lean it's based on six sigma mm-hmm. scamper waterfall all of these other innovation models have been in play what it does really well is that it repackages a lot of their elements into an accessible toolkit yeah um, but what i do warn is that just because you have a toolbox doesn't necessarily mean you should go and try and build the Taj Mahal. you know yep. yeah yeah um, it, it is about knowing how to use them as well um and you know not just sort of skipping through your five stages of the design thinking yeah I saw actually a post, I think it was posted about maybe two years ago. It was like a statement by the new CEO of Adio, I think, that was also addressing this, that uh, this this idea that maybe in a design thinking doesn't always work because companies pay 10,000 euro, they get the design thinking workshop and then bam, there's no innovation. And he was, again, I mean, he made a very fair point. I mean, obviously he's running a company that has to deliver those courses, but it's all about the implementation side of things as well, right? You can't just give people a workshop and expect that they suddenly now are experts in this uh, design thinking methodology or any methodology, really, you know? Um, I've said no to companies who say, can you come in and do sort of a three hour workshop in design thinking? I say, I certainly can, but I'm not going to because the reality is, mm. you know, unless there's already an environment that supports innovation and, and it's not about, there, there's a few reasons why it's not necessarily about being arrogant and sort of being selective. But as a business person who's selling something, if I sell you something one day and it doesn't work, then the likelihood is you're not going to bring me back. So it's about yep. creating the right kind of environment for your product to survive and exist in. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and that's part of my reasoning. But for me, the, the real motivator is that I care about what I do. I care about innovation. I kind of also happen to care about the clients that I work with. I don't like to see people waste money on certain things. Yeah. Um, so at a conversation recently, and I said, look, I'm not in the nice day out business. It's 
you know, people will come to workshops, they'll have a great time because that's just my approach to things. I'm kind of high energy. Mm. But they will leave with outcome. They will leave with, you know, yeah. that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you focus much? So I have two points on that. One is one is related to uh, the 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 Nova City Hackathon uh, because we also, when we're designing this, realize that okay, like we're not gonna go through the entire design thinking process in two and a half days. I mean, it's just you know. Anyway, we we work with the city, so they're doing some of the the customer discovery and identifying the problems. But you know, it's just I mean, you can do it, right? You can do the wallet exercise where you go like a flash through the whole thing, which is fun, but it's pressure, you know? Um, so that's one point that I'll come back to in a second. Uh, the second point, I think I've like completely and utterly forgotten it. There's too many ideas coming through my head. This is the problem. So maybe, maybe we're sick. <laughs> it was a bit design thinking, oh my God, what was it? No, I can't remember. It's gone now. It'll come back to me. But maybe we could talk about, about that then, just in terms of... Um, so, so my my philosophy when we were designing with our team, uh, the the experience of doing like a hackathon and you know, what level of input we can provide. So the foundation is design thinking, but we kind of focus more on the kind of the second diamond, I suppose, more than the first diamond. Uh, and the reason behind that is that I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with, with uh, I think I'm even going to change my LinkedIn banner to, you know, uh, something like, have you talked to your customer? Have you talked to your customer? Talk to your customer, talk to your customer. Because I often find when we get startups at a very early stage, the biggest problem they have is that they're nervous about talking to their customers or they're in that isolated state that you mentioned. So the, the concept, and I'd love to get your feedback on this for the hackathon was really about um, exposing them and getting an outcome, which would be like experience of like, wow, I learned so much. I gathered like so many insights, not just about like what we wanted to develop or build for mobility, but rather like I learned a skill of how like I'm going to ask them each each team has to talk to like 20 customers because there's no reason why you can't get that done in a day with a team of three or four. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask your, your experience with that or or what your your feedback might be because, you know, in, in a very short space of time, um, it's great to, to rush people through uh, something, but uh, I wondered, would you have focused on a, a different element of the process of design thinking or, uh, yeah, what do you think about focusing just more on the customer experience or the exposure? Okay, <clears throat> so I may throw a quick spanner in here. Um, the fact that the government are going out doing the questioning means they're the ones establishing the problem statements. Yeah. To me, unless they, I worked with a group before, semi-state company, and they said, we can't understand why people aren't taking on this product. It's brilliant, it's ingenious, it's this, that, and the other. I said, okay, the vast majority of the clients that you're engaging with are in their 60s, you know, and you're trying to sell them the idea of a new app. And this sort of relates to the idea you mentioned earlier that's going to have buttons, that's going to go on the wall, that's going to regulate this, that, and the other way in their areas. And like, yeah. And I said, okay, and who are you sending out? And they said, the programmers. I said, okay. Not traditionally well known for their capacity for engaging with human beings, wonderfully capable, all individuals within themselves, but my worry would be that you're going to get a skewed representation of the problem mm. because to me, my big innovation mantra is a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. It's yeah. Charles Kettering's statement slightly cannibalized and twisted a little bit. But having a well-defined problem statement, having a clear understanding of, of the problem, which means engaging with the customers, which means talking to them, which means sitting with them, which means observing them yeah. in action, um, and being able to then iterate even the problem 
saying, okay, so here's what we think the problem is. What's your take on that? Does this fit? You know, we've got four in a group. Are we comfortable that this is our problem statement that we start from? So we need yeah. a concrete starting point or as concrete as we can get. Um, customer, 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 customer. Absolutely. You yeah. Know, it's, it's all about their context because that's where the problem exists. That's who's experiencing the problem. Um, 20 customers, great. You know, that gives you a good level of insight. Um, potentially complicated, but um, still still useful once we've established a, a good problem statement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and again, just the, the critical thinking element and that having the capacity to be aware of context. So, and you're absolutely right. I see that fear in one of the things I do in the courses is, so we'd run, say, uh, a 10-week module that's attached to other modules. And pretty much on day one, I give the groups, and this is before we've engaged with design thinking, and it's while we're getting into the space, but it's to really break the back of that fear. It's say, okay, this is your persona, this is your persona, this is your persona. Give them a name, age, job, location, create a slight story around it, um, and then I swap them over with the group. So the other group maybe gets like Jane, who's 32, who likes sport, who this, and they get like a little psychographic element uh, attached to that, you know, what their interests are. They have to create a cafe or a restaurant or bar for that person. <laughs> and that's, that's nice. But what they have to do is they have to go out onto the street and find people who look like this person and interview them and interview them and ask them questions. And they are terrified. Um, yeah. But it, Put them in that space where you know you're going to be creating solutions for a human being rather than mm -hmm. for a, a construct. Um, and it's that human element that helps us to really understand that this is a problem somebody's having. This is why the innovative solution is necessary. Yeah. We're creating value for that person. Sorry, that's my mic. Um, no, I think I knocked something. Don't worry. I think it was me. super loud as well when I hit it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, to me, the, the really important part, because... If you have done that well enough, when you move into the ideation stage, mm -hmm. there should just be a natural progression of ideas. Yeah. To, and, you know, in design thinking, we design, um, you know, the, the kind of the principles of it are in that we are navigating that ambiguity, that we are building and crafting intentionally, that we are intentionally engaging with a good understanding of the problem, not just yeah. for the sake of being... I worked at a hackathon a few years ago around access um, and transport for people with disabilities. We've got a slew of people came in who have varied backgrounds, but the vast majority were in tech. So every solution was app-based. You know, and one of one of the winning solutions, which irked me no end, was, um, to be very polite about it, um, was a kind of an app that tells somebody that the next bus that comes along, that the wheelchair access seat has been taken up. And I said, okay, and then what? So, well, then maybe they can get another bus. And I said, well, the vast majority of buses are single serving, you know, yeah. bus routes. what did they do then? Oh, well, um, maybe they can get a taxi. I said, okay, have you ever tried to get a taxi um, in a wheelchair? They shifty dog eyes. It's a whole separate like ball game there. Yeah. No. And then he said, okay, well, even if they do get a taxi, then what? You know, I said, okay, let's just go straight back to the beginning. How many of you have spoken to a person in a wheelchair? None. 
And you're kind of saying, yeah. how can you assume, and this is like our first principles, yep. the assumptions to the concrete. Yep. No effort being made to, this is your user, you've decided your user is a person in a wheelchair. So we need yep. to find these people. Did a hackathon around homelessness. Similar process, head buried in the laptop. Yeah, I know what they want kind of thing, you know? Yeah, we're going to create a big hive in a greenfield space outside of the city. It's going to be this, that, and the other. And say, okay, critical thinking kicks in. Because they think the problem is housing, right? Which is an element only. But also you say, well, why do you think homeless people congregate in the city? Well, because that's where all the services that they use are. This is where the foot traffic is. This is, you know, the opportunity. So, but you know, I ask them all the questions and I say, okay, how many homeless people have you spoken to? (laughs) Zero. I say, okay, go outside because we're in the city center for this. And where that hub space was, there is a gathering of homeless people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. People offer to buy somebody a cup of coffee, ask them for five minutes of their time, be polite, be respectful of the fact that they have information you need. Yep. You know, you're not going out there to be a savior. You're going out there to learn. Yeah. Um, and position yourself in, in that way and ask the questions that you need to ask and hear the response. And yeah, really listen, right? Yeah. And again, unfortunately, those people won funding for their idea, but <laughs> having fully... But that's yeah. the power and value of branding um, because one of the things I would have helped them out with was the branding of their idea when they did pitch it. And um, This is the storytelling element of it, yeah, which which is important, of course, but I think the, the, the fundamentals is more about uh, talking to your customer, yeah. So I think what, what we might do, and I don't know what you think about this, is to use the, the challenges from the city to at least have a kind of a, a point of contact like a kind of a starting point but i really do agree with you that if uh, well first of all we were planning the initial customer side of the interviews to be a two-part so you can only talk about first the problem space to understand the issue of the uh, of whatever customer or potential customer and then the second part is only when you can begin to mention the uh uh, the product or the solution or the idea you might have. So at least that segments it. But I do understand that given the, the the proper time, you should probably just do customer discovery for like a day and then take all those insights using the proper approach of design thinking to be able to um, put it together and you know create some kind of a, an ideation session to be able to create new solutions. So I suppose it goes back to the nature of being um not using the process in one go, but rather like recycling through and being able to go back and redefine your problem statement or redefine your insights or whatever. One of the things I like is that while you're doing your customer discovery process, you're naturally going to come up with ideas. Um, yeah. We never want to go with the first idea. We always want multiple ideas. Creative <laughs> exactly. We don't get married to the first idea that comes along. <laughs> you go out with your book of post-it notes and every time an idea comes to head, you write it down, you put it in your pocket and you leave it there. Yep. And you keep listening and you keep, you will just naturally generate solutions to this. And then when we go back the next day or later that day, you sit down with the rest of your team and you empty your pockets out and all <laughs> the posts that you're doing, you're going to go, okay, what was this about? What was this about? Does this have validity? Is this a solution or is it the nucleus of a solution? Yep. Um, you know, does this fit with yours? Because you probably see this. I see this quite often. It's not the first idea. It's usually a combination of ideas. Yeah. Over time, build into a single, you know, unified solution. That is the really good one, rather than the yeah. space. Again, it's an example of long thinking rather than. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But customer discovery is a creative process as well. Yeah. You know. It's Absolutely. Not, uh, it's not the grim 
uh, sort of, oh, now I have to gather information. It's oh, Yeah, like I'm dreading having to go talk to the customers, you know, I just want to validate my product and whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so I think um, I'll kind of finish up then by just uh, very briefly explaining what the plan is. And I've already gotten some really great feedback from you uh, to be able to maybe structure and a few things we can remind people of that, you know, this is the problem statement or the challenge from the from the, the cities because it's quite important to engage them at least. But, you know, the ultimate customer is still going to be the citizen of Munich in, in, our, in our case for the upcoming uh, hackathon. It's either going to be a citizen of Munich or a citizen of, um, um, of Barcelona. These are the two cities that we're focusing on. But that, you know, everything has to be, uh, as you said, defer judgment and uh, be willing to go back and redefine your problem statement to make it, as specific as, prob- as possible. And we have templates as well to be able to develop your problem statement so you know what the problem is and who is it for and where do they live specifically and stuff like that, right? Um, but that's already really great. So I just wanted to give a little spotlight then of the, the, the we'll be doing three hackathons uh, over the course of the next three months. So it's quite a, quite a heavy schedule. And we're, we're labeling it as Europe's uh, largest uh, mobility hackathon. Uh, so we have three, so we're kind of cheating, right? It's three for the price of one. But um, the, the upcoming um, uh, hackathon will be focused on challenges based around Munich and, and Barcelona. Um, so the, those cities will pose the, the two kind of topic areas around uh, mobility that are most challenging challenging for them right now. I have a feeling, of course, that a lot of them will be based around uh, the coronavirus because of the fact that now I find that health and mobility have kind of blurred lines um, and uh, they're very much inter- inter- interlinked. And uh, then in uh, October, we have one being hosted by the city of Tel Aviv. And then in November, we have uh, another program hosted by a hackathon hosted by um, um, Helsinki with uh, the University of Alto Executive Education. And the essential idea is it, it's a, it's the hackathon is is the same structure across all three, but it's designed in a way to provide a space first of all to, to learn because we want to teach some of these methodologies or learn by application. So teach you how to talk to customers, teach you how to write a problem statement, teach you how to ideate, and then finally be able to pitch an idea over a very short period of time. And um, but another important element is to connect you um, to people. And the the idea here is we have partners from from Technion in Israel, Unternehmertum in Munich, Alta University in, in Helsinki and um, the Polytechnic University of Catalonia in, in Barcelona, as well as other networks like people like yourself, Carl, that will be joining from next year um, to be able to link you with those people that have different expertise surrounding uh, mobility and to be able to grow your network. And and I think learning and applying plus the the network, that's at least my reason why I joined hackathons like Science Hack Day and Startup Weekend before. It's like to find a co-founder. It's just to engage with people that have a similar um, mindset. But um, long story short, we will have these three hackathons. We'll have two winners from the Munich Barcelona in September. So one team that addresses the Munich challenge will win and one team from the addressing the Barcelona challenge will, will win. Then we have a winning team from Tel Aviv, a winning team from Helsinki, and each of those teams will have amazing prizes they're gonna win and they will receive some additional coaching combined with our partners. So from, for example, Technion in Israel will support you, plus the city of Tel Aviv will work with you to be able to make sure that you can continue to do more customer development and uh, and to develop your prototype with the customers over the course of a a few weeks. And then at the end of the year, those four teams will kind of battle it out at uh, what we call Global Week. So we do an additional business development workshop. We put you center stage on uh, in front of international experts around mobility 
and uh, try to have kind of a, a really good ultimate event at the very, very end to be able to win some prizes that we have yet to, to still announce, but we will in September. So that's the basic the basic structure. So I, I'm, I'm personally really excited to have you on board for, for, for one of them next year. I think it's going to be really great. Definitely going to make it the first one because, you know, life is a prototype. So I want to, uh, to learn from you as well to be able to organize the agenda and everything and be able to um, build on that experience as we will for this year as well. Um, but yeah, I suppose um, maybe just one last final word from yourself about, um, you know, um, maybe some of the um, experiences that you've had from 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 a hackathon. I know you mentioned some of them that you've you've joined, and you've kind of already touched on it that you know you need to talk to your customers full stop. And I'm glad that at least be aligned on that because this was my feeling already that it's not so much the process of design thinking, but rather like just getting. You know, used to talking and listening to the customers. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add about um, the benefit of hackathons or your experience of of being involved with them before? Um, just as a final word, maybe. Yeah. So I mean, certainly hackathons give you the opportunity to network. You know, and this is part. This is where you put your entrepreneurial hat on and you get to. Yeah. You're involved in it. The other thing that I always think needs to change about hackathons is that even if you're not the winning team your idea still has value. I see great ideas. I think I've said this, kind of hinted at it already. I see phenomenal yeah. ideas left on the table because they weren't the winning team. Yeah. Um, and you may have come up with a phenomenal idea that needs a week more or needs another conversation or needs just that catalyst to switch it from being a good idea to being just a, a little a little push. Yeah. Um, don't walk away from it at the end of the hackathon, you know, thinking yeah. sure, that was a nice day out um, or we had a bit of crack or, you know, that was that was cool. Um, especially to me, especially when something's about urban mobility, it's important. Um, mm. You know, and I, I work, I try to work only at hackathons that I think are valuable to other people and not necessarily in a, in a business context, but provide social value. Um, yeah. And a hackathon around urban mobility to me has capacity to be important. Um, and if there are 10 ideas on the day and there's two winners, for example, that doesn't mean eight ideas should go in the bin. Absolutely. We should take a look at those eight ideas and see if there is an opportunity to scale them uh, or level them up towards being great ideas. And this is something I think after, you know, on a, on a financial aspect that we invest in a hackathon and we focus then only on two and we're completely missing, an, you know, 80% yeah. of an opportunity um, that may require m minimal investment of time or a second conversation with an innovation coach, somebody like me. Yeah. Um, because as you said, you know, earlier, your idea oh, wasn't a great idea. You couldn't expect people at that age. Look, let's tweak some of the elements in there and let's find a way to make it accessible to people who maybe don't, who aren't uh, digital natives who are digital immigrants or completely, you know, not at all digital or entirely analog. But there's always a way to make an idea more applicable to the problem as, as it exists. So even if you're not within the, the top two or top three, don't park the idea. Give it a give it a couple more conversations. Um, have a few more meetings amongst your team and see if you can level it up to being a potentially valuable idea. 
Yeah, that's really fantastic. I mean, you you kind of made me pause there earlier as well when uh, I was reflecting on dropping my idea just because, you know, it doesn't work. And actually, very at the end of that, we pivoted and did a, a startup weekend Munich event where it was, a, you know, a hackathon, two and a half days. And again, I had the experience. I didn't get in the top three and I was like devastated. You know, I was just like, but my idea is great. Like, I know it's going to bring, I had social value, had everything. It wasn't about augmented reality more. It was about like connecting services. And I had that feeling. So, and this is no way a bad negative reflection of, of Star Weekend. It was a fantastic experience. But I, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head there with that point that this is like this is really about learning and applying and connecting. And it's a competition. We have winners, but uh, we're putting a very strong focus on. And this is something I'm obsessed about about we, we we touch base with entrepreneurs at the first the first contact right you just have an idea you don't know what to do you come here to the hackathon you come here to our boot camp and we sort out um everything we put it together we put it put it in place give you a framework but most of my job is what's next yeah. so our program finishes so so where do the people go we, we can't let them drop off the face of the earth right so community is so important there absolutely if i can <clears throat> kind of say one more thing on that because judges are human Judges are biased. Judges are wowed and amazed by the whistles and bells the same way everybody else is. Um, yeah. Sometimes great ideas get lost because they're not pitched particularly well. Yeah. Um, because we haven't spent time working on how to communicate the real value. A really yeah. quick rule of thumb for pitches. Problem, solution, benefit. You outline the problem, create the emotional buy-in. You pitch your solution. That's we don't overemphasize the technicality of it. Nobody cares about you being a genius. We want to know how it serves the user, but we know who the user is because you've explained a problem. And yeah. the benefits of that on a very human basis. So the judge can experience what you're what you're talking about. I see great ideas lose at hackathons and pitches because they haven't put time into that aspect of it. Because the judge is probably thinking about the phenomenal branding of the other idea, that's probably only yeah. 50% of a good idea. Whereas yours may be 100% of a good idea, but it's only you who understands it. And only maybe your team and the third person on your team is kind of going, I don't get it either. <laughs> you know, I, I can remember that exact kind of expression when I was pitching I before. I do see that where somebody yeah. kind of looks at the rest of the team and... like. It's what? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're doing what? I do see that. And then I suppose like in the, in the context of a pitch, when a judge asks a question, you say, thank you. It's actually a really interesting question. You compose yourself and then you respond with your answer. You don't get grumpy with the judge. Stay judges. calm. Yes. Yeah. I see people get really like, how double dare you ask me that question? Yeah. Or having the answer ready too quick where they're like, yeah, but we already thought about that and we're going to make sure that it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. a subscription based and, you know, and this is like, whoa. Take a breath. Actually, that's a really great question because it allows me to tell you about the fact that, so what we did was we looked at this, we were selective in our solutions, but we yeah. might see the capacity for extending this to be including, you know, subscriptions, to be including, yeah. this, to be including that. But thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, that's a fantastic. That's even more important than the pitch itself. It's like human composure, you know. At the end, it's all about like how you hold yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky. It can be the it can be the the dividing point between two ideas that are competing. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, that's fantastic. But thank you for giving those tips. And and again, I just want to emphasize we we will not be dropping people off the face of the earth just because we have this one hackathon. I mean, if you don't make it in the, the top three, you can also join the other hackathons. But aside from that, at the end of the hackathon, we will be presenting at the end of each of them, we will be presenting like 
logical next steps from our network, uh, free programs that you can continue to engage with. The winner actually of Meetup Barcelona, the two winners will, will get to go to a bootcamp that we run uh, as part of Untenemetum, but there's tons of other programs across Europe that you can still engage with. So we want to make sure that we guide you through that process afterwards. And we also have um, a Slack group that we'd be creating and a meetup group called Urban Mobility Innovators that are just launched because we want to meet monthly and we want to link this community together as best we can. So uh, we hope that that will provide the necessary infrastructure that people can have a chance to again, pitch their idea in a month when they're ready and uh, and give themselves a chance to really, really grow. But um, it's a great point. I mean, <clears throat> My other last point as well that, you know, the last, last point. Yeah. These ideas may have their zeitgeist in this, uh, in this, at this event. But if you come together with a good team, generate a good idea, give it another month and it's a phenomenal idea, yeah. then you don't necessarily, and no disrespect to what you're doing, but there, you don't necessarily have to be part of this. You know, these are absolutely take to, and we've got Dublin County Council, there's a, a group attached, yeah. to, you know, that, you know, these become your ideas. Um, this gives you a great platform to, to develop them with support. But um, yeah, I mean, that's why, again, you don't walk away at the end of this and go, oh, came forth. You know, that further conversation gives you a great product that you can pitch to potential investors, to uh, councils or absolutely kind of entities. So. Yeah, community goes even further, right? Because, you know, I learned recently in Munich, there's 52 entities that support startups, 52. Like it's a massive ecosystem. Yeah. And I'm, I'm now looking systematically to connect to all of them because, you know, I, I can't go to 52 websites, but I can, but I don't have the time to and, and, and list every single deadline, but we can, we can engage them and, you know, they can put forward programs because we are, I'm completely agnostic to whatever your next steps are. If you can just do this yourself and you have a great team and you just need you know, the hackathon or me just to say, hey, and you know this from coaching, sometimes people, all they need is a tiny little push to say, how about you do that as a deadline? How about you make your prototype in one week earlier than you think you will, or one year earlier than you think you, you can do it. And that's all people need. And then they, it's like rocket fuel, off they go. And um, I, I completely agree. It just needs to be um, the right environment to push them forward. And whatever that is for you, uh, we hope that we can find it for them. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no. Cool. A huge opportunity. Okay, great. But look, Carl, thank you so much. I, I really loved your last, last, last points. It was great. Um, and uh, I'll put links to, to your company and to your LinkedIn, if that's okay. I'll put them in the description so people can find you easily. Um, we'll also put in the, the links for the books. I definitely will be ordering them myself, the two books you recommended. And of course, we'll put links to um, uh, Nova City if you're interested to be able to sign up and register. We'll uh, make sure everything is in the description. Great, Carl. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll have you back on again sometime in the future sure. when we're all famous, you know. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I think you're already you're already a local hero, right? You're already local, locally famous. I have I have uh, I have spent my time in Munich. Enjoyed it very very much. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure it was ready for my dancing, but. Uh... <laughs> Don't worry, we have Oktoberfest, so I think uh, the standard is uh, is is lower, you know. So I, well, I have to say, Berlin is kind of my spiritual home, but I I did oh right did very much like Munich. Really liked it actually. Yeah, it's it's changed. I don't know when you were here, but it's it's evolving, and there's a bit of well last year. Last year, okay. Well then, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, the number the number of good coffee shops has increased, but uh, yeah, it's um. It's slowly, slowly coming out of its conservative shell and starting to to evolve a little bit. There's little pockets of Berlin esque places coming, okay. but uh, okay. but I mean Berlin is a different beast, right? It's it's a it's a crazy place to go. It's uh, 
I, I love it too. So it's fantastic. But we'll have you back whenever it's possible. No for sure. Happy to join you again. Yeah. Cool, Carl. All right. Thank you very Thank much. much. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.